start now. If you haven't started already, don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Just make something. Make as much as you can when you're younger and when you don't need as much money to pay your bills and dare to make mistakes. Welcome to the Behind the Scenes podcast. This is Michael Golab. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Harden. Jonathan is an actor, director, and used to host the immensely popular The Honest Actors podcast. We talk about the importance of creating as much as you can, how to make the fear of public humiliation work in your favor, the significance of always doing the work and being prepared, the crucial skill of creating your own opportunities, the joy of competing with yourself, and so much more. So... (laughs) There's going to be quite a lot of swearing in this episode, so if you're easily offended, you might want to skip this one. But I truly believe that you'll find a lot of value in this conversation, so please enjoy. And now, I bring you Jonathan Harden. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks very much for having me. That was the weirdest hello I've ever uttered in my life. Uh, I don't know. I, I felt like I was on a game show. I felt under pressure when you said hello. And uh, I came out with hello, like a total weirdo, so apologies. No, it's a very good hello. Thank you, man. No one's ever said that before, and I doubt anyone will ever again. <laughs> you never know. So what what do you love the most about, well, about what you do, working as a director, actor, filmmaker, and podcaster? Working. Um, the worst part of what we do is not working, I guess. Mm. Um, the second worst part of what we do is working on things that we don't particularly enjoy because sometimes that's more disappointing than I think it is for people in, in the real world, other jobs, because they expect to be disappointed by jobs, whereas whenever we are, um, it always feels like a punch in the gut. And and the, the, the only reason really we do and we go through all that is because whenever we're working on something we really enjoy, that it's it's golden. And I can't say any more than that. Um, I, I, quite rightly, as you've pointed out, do a multitude of things I always have in the past that also included things like work behind a bar and work on a building site and um, work in an office. And... Uh, uh, as a friend said to me yesterday, um, I've had more part-time jobs than anybody else he knows. And I'm like, you know what? I think I've done about 15 different jobs. So um, those jobs, not so much fun. But the best part of what we do most definitely is when we get a chance to actually do it, whatever that is. Um, in my case, mostly it's directing and acting and voiceovering over the past year with, with lockdown, obviously limiting employment opportunities in live performance and also uh, for, a, for a time at least in television and film. Mm. How do you deal with a time when you're not working? Um, well, I just spent a good hour immediately before this interview, which I almost missed as a consequence, pulling um, weeds from our very small lawn <laughs> on my hands and yeah. knees. And I was... <laughs> I had an almost out of body experience. I don't. I've never done that before, but I really got into it, and I spent a good hour. Uh, as if a friend, friend of mine once said, Paul Higgins, you can treat anything as art, and I was treating taking weeds from our lawn as art. And uh, as my father in law says, I was waging war on weeds. So um, I just do whatever, whatever tickles my fancy. Like I've been quite good at making my own work 
of various kinds in the past. So I made a podcast for a number of years. Before that, years ago, I was involved in a in like a French theatre company when I was younger. Now I um having made a couple of shorts of my own, I'm currently editing an accidental debut feature film, which I hadn't intended on being a feature, but has stretched and stretched and is now a feature. Um and as the same quote, I'm quite good at from a work perspective, keeping myself busy, but also from a personal perspective, um, whether it's weeding lawns or going for a run, doing exercise, DIY, um, I just like to make things more than anything. So whether it's making film or making, you know, this past couple of weeks, I've been making my wife an office in the garage. So, <laughs> you know, I just, I just fill my time making. Ah, uh, well, I love that. Well, the, the, the thing you said about that you can turn anything into an art. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that because, um, I would never have thought of that. And, and Paul Higgins, the actor who actually did an interview for my podcast. And it's, I think it's one of the, one of the best of the bunch. Um, he is one of the greatest actors I've ever had the privilege of working with. And one of the most encouraging and inspiring people and is from a, Similar background to me, albeit a different city from Glasgow. And um, he has a very, very kind of clear um, picture in his head on what constitutes art. And on, in his case, that actors are artists. It was a bit of a debate in, in, that I was aware of, of whether actors were artists or whether we were, you know, uh, we fulfilled an interpretive function. And he was very much on the side that, no, we have to call ourselves artists. We have to claim claim that as much as musicians or as painters or as anybody else involved in the creative industry. So, um, yeah, he, he, he's, he's a fascinating guy and I've come oh, to amazing. agree with him on many things. That's funny. Mar I think Marlon Brando said that we're not artists, that we're just, like you said, interpreting. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, could you, did he say that? It's hard to understand Marlon sometimes. He could have been saying anything. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, no one mumbler Marlon Brando. He's hard to quote. He's, yeah, I mean, he said so many things, but he's, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm quite a big fan of his work. Do you know I'm what? I, I, I am not, this is going to sound like um, identifying myself as a Philistine beyond compare, but um, I'm not familiar with a lot of Marlon Brando's work. Really? Yeah, I mean, the big ones I've seen, and I think he's interesting, let's say. I have this thing that acting, naturalism doesn't exist, and... Um, that it evolves as, as you know, through generations. So our idea of naturalism is different from what naturalism was in the 1940s. And, and that, if you really think about it, the naturalism that we go to the cinema to see in 2021 is not really naturalistic in any way at all. It's still very stilted and stylized. And, and acting is not in, in most film anywhere near real life. It is in things like... Um, uh, uh, what was it called? Um, uh, God, it's horrible when people do this on podcasts and I can't remember. I'm now one of those people. Um, <laughs> uh, Scarlett Johansson did a film in Scotland about five, six years ago and uh. they picked up uh, real people in a van and they were cast real people but they were real people and 
then you realize when you see a real person on camera being real, you realize that naturalism has a long way to go. So getting back to Marlon Brando, I just feel like when I watch Marlon Brando the same way as what I feel when I watch uh, Laurence Olivier, I just feel it's a very dated style. And, really? And yet yeah, doesn't work for me at all. Uh, which, which, may I ask, which films did you, did you watch? Um, so the big one, I guess, would be, um, I'm, see when people say, I've said this in my own podcast so many times, people ask me for names of things, uh, the name goes out the window, uh, is it Tennessee Williams? Um, oh, the Streetcar Named Desire. Streetcar, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Streetcar, I really like the performance, like, mm. re- and it's brilliant, but it's of its time. And so for me, uh, I'll watch a film for the film's sake. I won't, I, I've never watched a film to see more Marlon Brando. Oh, fair, um, fair. And, and there are only a handful of actors that I've ever went and sought more of their movies based on a single performance. And usually what I find is that um, I've fallen in love with a single performance and that character rather than an actor because I feel like we all have the right to be good and bad on different days of our of our lives. And sometimes people are brilliant in one film and then you go and see another and you're like oh that was that particular moment in their lives and that director and that script and that character and all those things came together in a way that's alchemy and and actually we're all really lucky if that happens once and I think it applies to the big, the big guys as much as anybody hmm, that's interesting see I the reason I love him so much is because I think he moves me every time when I watch him act and because I find him to be such a chameleon and like, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of his stuff. I mean, he was such a torn and sad man in a way, but yeah. Yeah. I'll tell uh, you who, who, um, who I really like in that vein. And it's interesting because people, particularly at, at the Adler school connected him with Marlon Brando is Mickey Rourke. Uh-huh. And Mickey Rourke really moves me. Uh, um, and see, I have to say that I don't know enough of Mickey Rourke's uh, Yeah, work so it's interesting. Like, <laughs> I mean, Mickey, older Mickey Rourke, I, and I think it's also, there's one Mickey Rourke film in particular, and it's The Wrestler that really moves me, and it's because it's it's that thing, it's the perfect synergy of an actor and a, and a character and a director who really wanted him to do it, and a script, and you can't imagine anybody else but Mickey Rourke having such a connection with that material, and so... I, I do believe that I, I don't really buy into the idea of actors who are outstanding in that way every time, because I know that I'm not saying I'm outstanding at all, but I, I know when I've been I've been very good. I also know that the job either side of that it could have been terrible, and I I don't think I'm the only person that suffers from that. I think I'm probably I probably work with a greater variety of quality uh, than people here at the top of the industry, but. Um, in terms of the other people I work with, but I think we all are are subject to the vagaries of who we're working with and what we're working with or what we're working on, and um, and yeah, I mean, I I I talk about films rather than I talk about actors. Now I used to talk about like Paul Giamatti, and I used to talk about um, you know Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I used to talk about. Um, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and uh, like so many actors and I'd be really excited to see what they did and then I'd be like oh that's disappointing and the same thing happened with directors I'd be like oh fuck I can't wait to see the next film from X, Y or Z and then I'd see it and they'd be like oh it wasn't as good as 
And so I think the films, I think for me now, as I get older, it's just calmed down to the films stand on their own. And it's the individuals are, are you know, the film is greater than some of its parts. And, and um, I think that, that in a way I find more liberating as a filmmaker because I believe that sometimes I, I could be that lucky. <laughs> I, I, I could, I could assemble a team and have a script and make a film that would be earth-shatteringly brilliant and I have to believe that otherwise I wouldn't start anything um, but I also forgive myself the occasions on which what I do is not exceptional because I think that's part of making art oh yeah of course I mean also the more you produce the more obviously the more let's say mediocre stuff one produces right and the more the higher the probability is that something will be outstanding mm. but to have the courage to do it yeah yeah, and I, but I do think you know if you're if you're you know uh, somebody somebody quite discerning like Maggie Gyllenhaal and you you can pick who you're going to work with and you can turn and you can afford both financially and and kind of spiritually to turn work down, then you're kind of guaranteeing us. Well, you're not guaranteeing. You're 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 giving a better chance at having a decent pro- level of product at the end of all of that, and and I guess. For us, and I say, I say me, at lower down the pecking order in the industry, we don't have that ability. And so we are going to have to just like, stomach it sometimes when we get through a project and we put our all into it and then we sit down at the end and we watch it and we think, oh, that's it. And, you know, that's, but as I say, that's that coming back to the, the top of this, you know, that is the nature of making art. That's, you know, Talk to a painter, talk to talk to a musician and, and if they think everything they've done is outstanding, then I'm pretty much willing to bet they're either a psychopath or they're not very good or both. <laughs> huh. What what would be your main advice to someone who'd like to succeed as a well filmmaker, director, actor? Um, start now. If you haven't started already, don't think about it, don't talk about it, just make something. Make as much as you can when you're younger and when you don't need as much money to pay your bills and dare to make mistakes. Dare to be shit. Um, don't try to make a film at 21 that's going to win a BAFTA or change the world or, you know, uh, make its impact because it may well do that. But if it does that, it will do it because you're trying to take risks or, or you're you're taking enough risks that it could end up failing. And and for me, that's my biggest regret. And that's, I guess, where all advice comes from is is the things that went well or the things that went badly. For me, the thing that I think I should have done is I should have done more younger. And the things that I done I did when I was younger should have been more risky. And I played it safe because I was afraid and I wanted people to think I was good and I wanted to be solid. And actually, I should have dared to have people say, that guy's a lunatic and he's shit. Because I would have learnt more from that than trying to be good and ending up being mediocre. Ah, uh, that's great advice. Wow. Well, who I knows, may rem- I, I, can't, I can't say it is because it's not what I did. I think it kind of is, though, because it reminds me of myself. When I was younger, I also thought, I'm, I'll just wait till the very last week or whatever, if it was a theatre performance, to invite everyone... You know, once I know, I'm quite sure that it's going to be okay or good. But now I just invite people before I even start with rehearsals. Whatever it turns out to be, that's what it is. And, yeah. you know, you can't change it. So 
Well, there's uh, another thing be. about that as well that's mm. really important, Michael, and that is you cannot enter into a creative process half-heartedly and by not inviting people into the last week, you're kind of preparing yourself for the fact that it might be shit. Yeah. And actually, there's a great there's a great kind of motivator in pressure and uh, there's nothing like the fear of public humiliation to motivate you to get shit done and get shit done well. So uh, I am a big fan of of uh, telling people what I'm doing, um, of putting my aims and aspirations out into the world, not because I believe in the secret and that the universe is going to give it back to me, but because I want people to hold me to account. And I think that, that what you've just said is exactly that is, if you know friends and family and potential agents and whoever else are going to come and turn up, then you're going to get your finger out of your backside and you're going to fucking work. So, um, not saying that you need motivated that way, but sometimes I think we can hold back and we can not engage fully with a project because we're like, this might not be good. So I'm not going to invite people. And in a way then you're just tempting it. You're, you're just setting mm. it up to be anything other than brilliant. Yeah, that's a kind of, it's similar advice that they give to people who want to stop smoking or stop drinking or get on a diet to tell everyone, especially people yeah. you care about, that you you know that you're going to stop drinking because then you 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 will live you have to live up to it otherwise you you're breaking your word. Yeah, that is a very 100%. strong yeah yeah hundred percent. Mm. So is that your advice to your younger self? Basically, risk uh, more. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to this as well, which is like. I'm quite happy with how things worked out for me in that um, I wanted slightly different things when I was in my 20s. I wanted slightly different things in my 30s and I'm in my 40s I want slightly different things again. And it would be all very well me having an opportunity, as I've said in my own podcast, to tap myself on the shoulder in a foyer and say, you know, Jonathan, um, save yourself some hassle, X, Y, Z. But actually... Um, I hate to sound a wee bit naff and trite, but the journey is as, if not more important than the destination. <laughs> and yeah. and I got here the way I got here and it's been fine. And I always say like, you know, I wish I'd trained. If I had a trained, I wouldn't have met my wife because um, I met my wife at university. And, um, you know, I went out with a girl before that who if I hadn't have went out with, I probably would have went away to train. So in a weird way, if I didn't go out with her, I wouldn't have met my wife. And just, I can, tr you can track everything back in your life the way you have it to decisions that you might've made differently with the benefit of hindsight. If you don't see the full effect of those on your life. And it's like everything sets off a series of events in a, in a chain. And, you know, I did some things that were a waste of time. I did some jobs that wasted my time. Specifically, I was an academic for four or five years. I did a start of the PhD. I spent six or seven years working on a PhD. Total waste of my time. What if, did you study? It was in theatre, but it's a total waste of time as a PhD. But that's if you don't, th if I don't think about it, like while I was doing that, I directed some plays because I had loads of time and I wasn't into the PhD. So I was able to go and do things I wanted to do. I spent three months refurbing a house that we lived in. It was our first house together. Like, you know, okay, I didn't get a PhD, but I got a shit ton of other stuff and it motivated me to decide to move to London and to pursue acting because I realised what I did want to do by doing what I didn't want to do for seven years. So, like, 
that that would be my advice to to other people. But if I went back to myself and and tap myself on the shoulder in a foyer, I'd just say, keep going, man. You're doing okay. Keep going. Don't let people, don't care as much what other people think about you because those were the things that crippled me when I was younger, thinking, I hope these people like me. Effectively, subconsciously, that's what I hoped. Like, I hope everybody likes me. I couldn't bear the thought of somebody not liking me. And I think my advice would be more about that than about career or 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 anything else. And, and Interesting. And I probably say, keep fitter, do more exercise, look after your <laughs> yeah. body more, because I guess <laughs> those things you'll never regret. Like, there's no uh, point in me yeah. goes, I really don't, I really, you know, I don't regret my unhealthy dad in my 20s and, you know, not doing any exercise. Of course I regret that. So, so that would be my advice to myself. Look after yourself better in your 20s. Is it, so how do you care less about what people think about you now? Is it, has it been a process or do you talk to yourself whenever you find these thoughts popping up, say, hey, Jonathan, just relax, it doesn't matter? Or um, do you have a method, basically, a ritual or anything? No, I don't. I, a couple of things happened. Uh, don't get me wrong. I still sometimes wonder why doesn't that person like me? Um, because I think like all people, I consider myself to be a reasonably nice person. I know I'm sometimes a cunt, but most of the time um, I try to do the best by other people around me. And sometimes I'm a wee bit more selfish than I like to admit. But generally, it's fine, right? But what's happened is over the years, I think I've just withdrawn from whatever the scene is. So I think I used to see more people from the scene. And of course, coronavirus has really assisted me in this. But before that... I stopped going to opening nights of shows that I wasn't in. I stopped actually going to other people's shows unless I really wanted to go there. I stopped participating in the circus around what we do and therefore I bumped into people less and I noticed the sidewards glances less and I went off Facebook and I did all... So I didn't really have interactions with people at the level that I had done when I was really pushing my career and, and on social media a lot when it was the done thing like six or seven years ago when everybody was on Facebook pretty much constantly checking in to their part-time jobs and checking into the fucking tube station. Like, you know, when social media was endemic, I think that's when I felt at my worst. And uh, before social media, I think it was when I was a teenager and I was in school all day and it was with people all day. And that just made me more anxious about how disliked I felt I was by some people. So I guess, I guess my method has been to just step back and see less people. And the consequence of that is I only really see people who I like and who I hope like me back. And, and therefore my interactions with people who I don't really care for are limited. Oh, hmm. <laughs> that's a good that's a good method. <laughs> I mean it's it's I mean it's not probably great career wise. I mean people do say that you know you should make an effort and and mingle yeah. and mix and network, but I don't do that anymore at all. Well, it's a bit difficult now with corona, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah, I mean but even uh. before like one of the reasons that made, one of the things that made it so easy to move back to Ireland was because London had ceased to exist to me in any way apart from the fact that it was a handy place because there were three or four airports. So, um, 
I didn't go to classes. I didn't go to see many shows. Uh, I lived in Tooting. And when I say lived in Tooting, I mean, I pretty much based myself. I went for coffees and pints and lunch and walked the dog in Tooting. Um, and my, my kind of, my excursions into, into town were, were increasingly limited. And I quite liked that. I used to request self-tapes even when I lived in London, way before coronavirus was even heard of. So, you know, not that I'm antisocial or a recluse. That sounds like that's kind of the picture I'm painting. But um, I just realized that being around people who I don't know or like or trust made me anxious and 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 I reduced my uh, my exposure to that. Hmm. What would you say are the greatest mistakes that people make in, well, in your area of expertise and art? Uh, first of all, I wouldn't call art my area of expertise, uh, <laughs> but I appreciate that you've you've thrown that out there. Um, biggest mistake people make is uh, my single biggest piece of advice that I haven't said yet was don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah. People's biggest, and this applies to. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not under, I'm not kind of di- diminishing what he did, but he's more than just a dickhead. But the likes of Noel Clark is a dickhead. The biggest mistake is being a dickhead, you know, as well as being uh, uh, a sexual predator. He's just a fucking dickhead. And yeah. and from that place all the way down to not saying thank you uh, when you get out of a car on set to the person who's driven you. To, oh, yeah. To not, not, queuing for your food to not being considerate of other people's needs on set to not knowing your lines to <laughs> um to you know uh, being just disrespectful or ungrateful or being a dick like that is the single greatest mistake people make in this industry and it's not to say you have to be like sycophantically nice and you have to you know oh thank you so much and over the top but just Gratitude where it's due, respect always, and don't be a dick. Yeah. mm. Well, gratitude's also so important for one's own mental health in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. I I, I guess. I'd never never thought of it in those terms, but yeah, it is. And I, the more I work with people that I respect, I'll I'll give you one here, right? Uh, This is for free, right? And I've done it ever since. And I find... This is one example, but I find increasingly these things appeal to me. And I don't know whether it's Catholic guilt. I don't know whether it's uh, that that thing I talked about, that desire to be loved by everybody. But I worked with a guy called Conleth Hill once. And Conleth Hill, who's a double Olivier award-winning actor, walked from his trailer to the costume truck with his costume and handed it off and thanked him rather than, as I always thought it was, you hang up your costume and that's enough. And ever since that, I have hung up my costume, whether I'm in for one day or a week or a month, and then I carry it to the costume truck because, it, you know, it saves them coming to get my costume, <laughs> right? And I have to leave my trailer anyway, and usually the costume truck's like 30 paces, but my arms aren't full with other costumes, and... To me, it's things like that where you're like, it's not saying thank you in a kind of sycophantic way, but it's like, what can I do that isn't standing on people's toes or or being 
uh, or trying too hard that expresses that I feel feel myself to be part of a team, that I feel myself to be uh, an equal participant in a creative process than other people. I'm not a superior one or an inferior one. And I think that to me, when I saw it, I instantly felt, and I instantly knew that I had to, I had to do that myself from now on. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's these little things that make such a big difference, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's, seem- it's seemingly little because you could say that it doesn't cost one much to say, to really say thank you and mean it or to bring your costume back, like be action based in that sense. But it makes a huge difference because it makes people feel better. And people always remember that, I think, and how you see, make them feel. And if you want, mm. if people want to be, and some people will, people want to be utilitarian and, uh, you know, and, and goal-oriented, then fine. Uh, if people say nice things about you, that's not going to, that's not going to do you any harm, right? Uh, but I know I did a job uh, nine years ago, ten years ago this year, and two actors didn't hang up their costumes and left them in, in the trailers. And it wasn't just costume that Trick talked about them. It was costume, then it was the third AD, then it was the second AD, then it got back to the first AD. Then it was a kind of running joke with the director and then the producers were joking about it. And that's all very well because it's just costume, right? But like there's a, there's a kind of a smell or a stink from that that even if consciously that producer, director, whoever, don't think of that moment again. They'll always just think that person's selfish. Selfish. And and I, I never forgot how much every that became a thing. Everybody's like, because actors would hear it and go, they did what? They do what? And then one of them um, uh, refu- refused to flush his toilet because his TV didn't work. And so to what? get facilities back for a non-working TV in his trailer... He would take a dump in his trailer and not flush wow. it. And you're like, that guy doesn't work a lot, right? He didn't work a lot before. He doesn't work a lot now. Wow. Of course he doesn't. Who wants that? Who wants that? <sighs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I just think um, over the years, you realize that, you know, you get to arrive after everybody else. You usually get to leave before them. They've got longer days. Um, they get treated a lot less well than some cast members do, most crew. So you just do all you can to kind of respect their jobs and make sure you don't get in their way. Hmm. Hmm. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have hmm. a favorite, <laughs> favorite failure? Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, talking about being a dickhead. Um, I got a job on a film. I'll actually name the film because it was one of my first, it was my first, yes, it was. It was my first reasonable sized role in a feature film. So I did about five scenes in a feature film called, um, five minutes of heaven. And it was filmed in Northern Ireland in 2008. It was directed by Oliver Spiegel, who directed Der Untergang, uh, Downfall. And uh, that's experiment, and is an Oscar-nominated director. And I thought this is fucking brilliant, great. And I had four or five scenes, a nice little role, two weeks, 
on set. And uh, one of the scenes I arrived in to say like two lines, uh, to interrupt two characters who were having like a one minute dialogue. And I couldn't get the fucking line out of scripted. Could not get it out of scripted. Because I hadn't, I just went, it's only two lines. What is the line in my head? I fucking, it'll do. I was too excited being in a trailer. I was too excited getting driven to work. I was too excited getting picked up in a fancy car. I was just fucking too excited. And I didn't do the work. And I couldn't, I was, I was getting in the way of two other more important, bigger parts doing their job. And I had an Oscar-nominated director turn around and say, learn your fucking lines. And, I mean, I've spoken to him since. We talk. It's fine. <laughs> um, and I wasn't the only person he lost his shit at on that set because a lot of people didn't pull their weight, right? In various ways. And the act, one of the actors involved had a word with me afterwards. We chatted about it and he was like, you know, you're going to have to fucking learn your lines. And it really annoys me because every time I talk to him on the phone about a job I'm doing, he says, not as a joke, he'll say, just make sure you learn your fucking lines. And, and I mean, I, I have my own method as regarding how I work with lines, but I have to say that ever since that, I, in my head, think I'm pretty good as in, I've done, just actually watched a couple of scenes I shot at end of last year and they're like three, four minute long scenes and I know that I did take after take after take and, and didn't drop a line or fluff a word once and also another actor did something in the middle of one of it and I just kept going because I knew it was my close up and it didn't matter. But I would say that for me has, and it's not about learning lines, that, that particular experience, it's about preparedness and professionalism and doing the work whatever the work is it turns out I don't learn lines in a traditional sense I never have Uh, but I I try to learn them and know more and it's a very dangerous game but I have mastered I think the the kind of learning no more I, I try not to learn so I, I can, you know, recite backwards, like, or... Oh, yeah. Stand up. That's not my bag, but I never, ever again will turn up on a set not having done the work. And that's, that to me, um, has been, it was, was the biggest uh, failure. Turning in, point, in some yeah. Ways. Now, I could pick out loads of failures where I think I'm terrible in things, but I can't do anything about that. Uh, it turns out that when you think you're good, you're crap. Or when I think I'm good, I'm crap. Sometimes when I think I'm crap, I'm good. So me watching myself and being hard on myself actually doesn't it t- tend to be that helpful. So um, that's, I guess, my, if I was to pick one example, it is uh, five minutes of having, heaven and um, being told to learn my fucking lines by Oliver. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what Gary Oldman, that's his advice to, to actors, is to just be, be on time and learn your lines. That's all he has to say. Do you know what I mean? But there's so much truth in it, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, exactly that. And if I had any advice to younger actors, having got picked up in a car in South London on the way to North London, it's quite often I would end up in a car with someone else. And I have to say, there is a direct correlation between uh, how, how recently people have graduated from drama school 
and how willing they are to keep a driver waiting. So I find uh-huh. that the younger the actor, the more inclined they are to be three minutes after their pickup time out to the car or five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And wow. in my book, three minutes is unacceptable. That's how I roll, right? Um, because otherwise I'm stopping somebody else doing their job. So yeah. uh, that Gary Oldman's got it bang on. Be on time, yeah. uh, learn your uh. lines. And be on time, not just when the director and the producer are waiting, but be on time for everybody else as well. Hmm. Why is storytelling important? Why is it important to create good theatre films? Catharsis, is that? That's a big fucking question, man. Um, I know that it's a, it's a kind of human need. We do it without realising we do it. Uh, we do it at funerals. It's part of a process of coming to terms with trauma, with joy, uh, with every major life experience that we go through. It, it somehow ends up being boiled down to a story. And and for me, I'm not a good storyteller, like in the way that when I, when I see good storytellers, people who sit down and t- hold a room with an improvised tale from their own life where someone else is. I'm not that guy. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an average storyteller at best in that regard, but I love to be part of the telling of a story that is being told expertly. And when I work in film as an actor, I know that that is not, I'm not carrying that can. That can is, is the directors and the editors and the composers and all of the kind of design that goes around production design and costume and hair and makeup, they're all pulling together to tell a story. And I like being part of a story being told. Yeah. But it's important to me. Um, why is it important to me? Um, I guess because I'm not, because I can't do it on my own. So filmmaking as a, as a storytelling art is, has become an outlet for me because, because I'm not good at stories on my own. And, Theatre, I like to marshal stories, either as an actor or as a, a director. I like the idea of of trying to work out what an audience needs at a particular moment um, and how to get that hap- to happen, like how, how to fulfil that requirement in terms of their attention or where their emotions are at. And I find that fascinating. And oh, so you like the outside view? Yeah, I mean that's what appeals to me as a director. But as an actor, it's very much that thing of of being part of a collective storytelling, which you can't do in normal life. You know, we don't do collective storytelling. It, you know, we do individual storytelling to a community, be it a community as a family or a community as you know in a traditional kind of sense around a campfire. But but we don't do communal storytelling much maybe choirs I guess are a form of communal storytelling but but to me film and theatre when I'm performing it's that being being part of uh, a storytelling machine and I really uh-huh. like that uh, uh, like cog in the wheel but in a really positive way interesting yeah yeah there's nothing yeah. better than being cog in a fucking shit hot wheel man like <laughs> you know what I mean like like I said years ago uh, that I would happily do, uh, you know, a scene in the in the national and a fucking and a shit hot play uh, for, till the end of my career. Like you know, 
A, the money's not bad. B, when it's fucking great, it's great. Like, um, and I think, you know, as I get older, the ego kind of recedes. I realize what my strengths and more importantly, what my weaknesses are and, and also where the gaps are in my experience and, and why I'm not getting Shakespearean leads at the fucking RSC. Like, I now understand that. And why, why would you say, why, why do you think that? Because I haven't got the experience and I haven't got the experience delivering, uh, delivering verse. I haven't got the experience on stage in venues that size. Um, uh, and it's not, a, you know, I could say profile. It's probably a bit of that too. But but those those are the reasons, you know. As much as I think I could probably pull it off, I think at that level they're not looking for someone to pull it off. Um, and so so the older I get, I guess, I guess the idea of being a well-placed uh, contributing wheel in a big machine is... Like it's great. I just did a show called Time, which comes out in two weeks uh, on BBC, and I have about uh, five or six scenes over three episodes, and um, I, I don't I don't think I've ever been more proud of an involvement in anything before. Whereas oh, if you'd wow, said amazing. to me at twenty one talking about going back, I don't want to. Be, why am I not the lead in it? I want to be the lead. And now I'm like. Just fucking do do your job, pull your weight, and help tell that story. And if you do that, then and you can get paid and pay your bills and feel creatively fulfilled, then that's pretty much as good as it's gonna get. I yeah, think. it's called time. Time, yeah. For our listeners, yeah. It's a uh, time by Jimmy McGovern on BBC, and it's directed by the insanely gifted Lewis Arnold and it stars Sean Bean and Stephen Graham oh wow amazing I also want to mention at this point I mean I'm sure a lot of people will will know you and recognise you but Jonathan has had I have to say right because you're not past doing tense. it anymore yeah. past tense <laughs> an amazing podcast called The Honest Actors Podcast uh, yeah with amazing guests and you're really good at asking questions I have to say really good questions same mm. questions every time man same questions every time. Still, the really good questions. I mean, it's about questions. Is, is I find is about um, the skill of interviewing for me, and I'm not saying I was particularly good at it, but I think you find out what your strengths are in anything you're doing. My strength is remembering what people have said in relation to previous questions, because sometimes you find that there's a through there's a thread where they haven't seen a thread. That there is a there's a nugget of something in why they started to act at fifteen, that connects to uh, something they've said about you know uh, something in their thirties that they haven't made the drama. And I think those moments where you're able to connect something for an interviewee and then they fly with 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 that, I think those are the great moments and. I think that was my skill as an interviewer. I, I, I'm not great at it. I'm great at coming up with questions in advance, but um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a very very you realize you realize people who are good in interviewing, um, it's a real skill. Like, and the more you do it, the more as I say, the more you realize what you're not good at. And, so true, um, yeah. And it's not just about like the people who do Q and A's. I feel at theatre sometimes. 
the reason they get asked is because they know a lot about the play or the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, that's like 40% of it or less. It's like that old, you know, 90% what you, 90% how you look and 10% what you say. Well, interviewing is probably about 90% what you know about people and 10% what you know about what they've done. I mean, in terms of like psychology, like I think good interviewers are good psychologists, be it like, you know, um, there's a guy who has a, a podcast called Irishman Abroad. Um, and um, uh, Jarlath Regan is his name. And Jarlath Regan is, for my money, the best interviewer on a podcast you will hear. Um, he does his research, but he is so, so good at just responding in the moment and making people feel at ease. And, ah, and Regan is his name. Yeah, Jarlath Regan. He's very Jarlath good. Regan. And he's got a what's few his, What's the name of the podcast? Irishman Abroad. Irishman so he abroad. interviews Irish people and Irish descendants of Irish people around the world, like famous people, basically. Famous Irish people are famous. Gabriel Byrne, for example, is one of them. Lisa McGee, who wrote Derry Girls, is one of them. Uh, Sonia O'Sullivan, um, Irish Olympic swimmer, is one of them. Uh, Michael Conlon, Irish boxer. You know, it's very much aimed at the Irish, right? Um, but he has other podcasts now as well. He's a stand-up comedian, but he's just... I, I don't understand why he's not hosting a primetime TV show. He's brilliant. <laughs> Same way as Graham Norton is brilliant at it, like a natural. Um, mm. He's just very, very good. Mm. We Earlier we spoke about Michaela Cole, and mm-hmm. I've, I've, I found that episode very inspiring. You had something to say about her energy that... Well, do you want to repeat that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, she, she's, I, I just, one of the thing I find interesting about the podcast is um, you meet people at moments. So, you know, I, I ask people on the basis of, of work that I'd seen or if I'd worked with someone in the case of Michaela, I'd done very small part in something with her a few years previously. And um, you meet people at moments. She was just in post-production for the second series of Chewing Gum. And, you know, so this is before You May Destroy Me. This is before uh, so much that's happened to her yeah. uh, since. And she is just, her energy is insane, not in, as, as in mental crazy, but as in she is such a... Uh, Powerhouse. Fireball of life. Yeah, yeah. She is incandescent. And, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, in the way that it's hard to contain her for an interview, you know, it's like she's like excited about something that she's talking about. And then she's very intense. And it's like just, but always, always her, her momentum is forward. Look, so she's driving to the end of the story or she's driving you to the next question or she's, you know, it's just those people, I think, when you meet them, you know, like I met her that day. I remember thinking, fuck, she's going to be one of those women. And and my naivety at that time, I thought in her 50s, turns out she was like three years later, who's like fucking BAFTA winner, fucking uh, industry powerhouse. Like you can, you can tell when you meet those people that they are unstoppable. Uh. And she is an unstoppable force. 
What would you say, apart from her incredible energy, makes her unstoppable? Jesus, in Michaela's case, it's fucking talent, isn't it? Like, yeah, like, yeah. Like, I know a lot of people who have a lot of driving force and and don't go anywhere because they don't have the talent to back it up. Like, Michaela's story is one of talent, in her case, raw talent to begin with, that didn't go undiscovered. Because there's a lot of people that probably have that level of talent and it goes undiscovered, but Michaela sought it out. Michaela put herself on stage, wrote her own play, you know, lived in her car when she was at drama school. Like, she fucking mm. sought, she yeah. pushed and pushed and pushed yeah. and pushed. But pushiness isn't enough. Like, pushiness is no more than a, dra- than a, than a stage school kid whose parents want them to be in, in you know, uh, Matilda in the West End. That's pushy doesn't get you anywhere. I mean, it might get you to being in the cast of Matilda in the West End, but it's not going to, when the kid turns into an adult, it's not going to get them any further. Ultimately, talent is the thing that will out. And and because Michaela is this so incandescent, it burnt a hole in everything that tried to cover it up. Like, you know, she is uh, incredibly gifted and we know that now. And I think pe- the, the insightful people that she was working with on Chewing Gum knew that then. And and the people who commissioned I May Destroy You knew that when they commissioned it and gave her enough freedom to do something very risky and very different and and she delivered on it. And, you know, um, so yet it's talent. I love what she says about um, creating your own opportunities as well. She's like not waiting for things to happen. She's creating things and she's she she knows that the more situations you're in... Listen, Michaela Cole does not know how to wait. She does not know, Waiting is not in her vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what like I mean. You can yeah. tell that when you listen to that interview. She yeah, won't yeah, yeah. wait. Like, yeah. She, this is, uh, but there's this, this whole... But Jonathan, there's this whole... I mean, I'm sure you've come across this where people feel like they deserve something or they're waiting for things to happen to them and that's yeah. just not how the world works. No, totally. And like, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so um, oh, I wasn't going to say what the job was I met Michaela on. I don't know if, I don't think we referenced it in that interview. I think I cut it out, but it was Star Wars, right? And I play uh, uh, Resistance Monitor 2 or 1, and she plays Resistance Monitor the other one. Well, I think she's 1 because you see her first. And it was initially one part and they split it into two. So we effectively played the same part split into two. <laughs> yeah. And so we were on Star Wars, believe it or not, for that, over two weeks for four days. And we spent a lot of time sitting on chairs at the side of a spaceship set on the Bond stage talking shit. And Michaela makes decisions, I think, very quickly on instinct. She seems to be very instinctual. I mean, I'm talking like I know her really well. I don't know her extremely well. But what's interesting about Michaela, and this is why I feel I feel at liberty to do that, to talk about her this way, is because she decided very quickly about me, right, this is him. And, you know, so when I asked her to do the interview, she went, yes, because obviously she went, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that for that guy. That's absolutely fine. And she makes decisions, I think, about who to trust, who to allow close, um, quite instinctually. And, and I think she probably makes creative decisions the same way. I guess she does what she does. I'm not don't, don't say she probably doesn't plan and structure and all the rest of it, but I get the sense that there's something burning inside her and when she goes to write it, 
it comes out. I don't think she wrestles with with it much on the way out. I think it just comes out. And I think that to me, certainly, that her work speaks of that. So um, I think that not knowing how to wait and working on instinct and and having the courage of your convictions to finish things is another thing. Like, Michaela Cole finished a script. She finished a play and put it on. She finished a script and made it. Like, the other thing people have to do if they want to be Michaela Cole is finish stuff. Mm. See it through. Put right? it out there, publish it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see it through, you know? Like, like the amount of people I know, and, and this is the kind of accountability that I don't like, you know, will tweet or put on Instagram their their first page of their script. Like, I'm writing a script, first page, here we go. Don't reward yourself for page one. Reward yourself for page fucking 120 when it's finished. You know, it's really fucking easy to start stuff. Really easy. But if you finish a script, quality of it is actually secondary at that point on a first draft. You fucking did something and you finished it. Now you got to go back yeah. and finesse it. But like she fucking finishes things. And I think that's the dividing line for a lot of people is, is can you finish a script? Can you finish a project? Mm. Do you have a letting go ritual? Do you do anything at the end of a stressful day to calm down, to find some peace? If I'm at, quite often my most stressful days tend to be when I'm away from home. So if I'm like in a hotel or, and it's really hard in that case because my normal ritual for letting go would be to spend time with my wife, to stroke my dog and to, it's not a euphemism, and to, <laughs> um, to have a glass of wine like yeah um but when i'm in a hotel two of those things i'm prevented from doing by the virtues of distance and my inability to uh teleport but the third glass of wine i'm less inclined to do on my own in a hotel room and also it doesn't bring me the same sense of kind of relief and relaxation so so it's hard when i'm away to to switch off after a hard day I generally phone my wife or go for a run. Being on my own in a hotel room is bad for me, I've discovered over time. Very bad for me. Um, and if I'm at home, then actually the last thing I'll do is go for a run because I'm like, well, everything I need is here. So so I just tend to spend time with my wife and uh, we have a son who's usually in bed when I finish work. And a dog who's usually in bed but in the same room uh, on her back. And so we just kind of spend time and watch shit TV. Watch New Girl or Shit's Creek or uh, something really just easy and enjoyable and light. Oh, fair, fair, fair. Is, this is a tricky one. Is Well, in the last five years, or what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life, would you say? That's a great question. That's a cracking question. <laughs> um, what news? Give it to me again in all its glory. Well, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? Apart from having a dog, maybe. Well, a dog's seven. We've had a seven years. So, new belief, behave, behavior or... Fuck, that's great. That is great. Belief, behavior, or what was the other one? Uh, habit. Habit. Okay. So, 
belief, behavior, or habit. That is fucking brilliant. Uh, <laughs> what belief, behavior, habit? So beliefs, um, I'm not big on because I tend to change my mind about things a lot. So I don't subscribe to many beliefs as such. I'm not a belief system kind of guy. My belief system evolves as I need it to him, and that's that suits me just fine. Uh, habits that changed my life most over the last 10 years is, uh, is exercise, regular exercise. Um, you run. I run. Hmm. I have recently... Uh, purchased a smart bike, an indoor trainer, um, <laughs> and I'm tomorrow going to start pool swimming for the first time in my life at forty, nearly forty-two. Um, wow! And I have over the years done weight training and kind of strength training and all sorts, but it's all been good. Uh, my brother has a thing. My brother's very fit. He's older than me. And both my brothers are very fit, actually. And he says every uh, squat, every setup, every step counts. And it's true, right? But like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you don't have to fucking do an R. But it's better to do five stand, like body weight squats and a fucking two-minute run than to do nothing. It's better oh, to yeah. Go, better to go for a walk than not, right? But the way I think about it as well is... You never regret exercise. There are loads of things in life you'll regret. Like there's loads of things you can do with the next hour that you may regret. Exercise is not one of them, right? And I have injured, I've injured myself really badly in exercise. I've, I've prevented myself from doing exercise by injuring myself doing, I don't regret the exercise. I, re I regret not warming up or I regret the fucking, the, you know, the ballsy way in which I went into a run having not run in two years or you know like that's what I regret I never regret exercise it's funny how connected body and mind are in the end it's what the Greek said right it's like you really yeah. feel better and you're really calmer when you exercise and 100%. you feel like like your life suddenly makes a bit more sense than before you exercise my life falls apart <laughs> yeah. when I, so I had sciatica there from January I still have a little bit of pain and money back at exercise for about five weeks I couldn't walk for a lot of February. Um, I was spasming so badly. I was in tears from pain and also from kind of like just exhaustion from constant pain and hopelessness. And I was chatting to a friend about this yesterday because he's going through the same thing. And when I can't exercise now, the flip side is I drink more, I eat a lot of shit, and... I don't feel happy with myself. I don't work as much. I don't, I don't, I'm not as confident a person. And everything goes to shit. I get less done. When I'm exercising, I find it easier to motivate myself to eat well, to drink less, to get up earlier, to be more productive during the day. To, like things get done uh, when I'm exercising. So, like, that has been, and it's not five years, it's been about 10 years now. And I just fucking love it, right? Um, and I love competing with myself. I'm very competitive with myself, right? Um, and 
fairly solitary as well. Every single thing I do, I do on my own. Like I don't, I've never went to a class or like I, I just like being on my own headspace. Very rarely nowadays have evolved not to listen to music even when I'm exercising. I just, just do my thing and it's great. I love it. I fucking love it. But that certainly is the best habit I've got into. The other thing that's made a real difference um, is leaving the room that I work in, which is real luxury because a lot of people live in flats with not a lot of space. But if I'm doing work in a room, it's now a different room from the one I spend evenings in. So there's a separation between work and non-work life. And that's made a massive difference to my mental well-being as well. That I'm not sitting in a room with my unfinished work. That's interesting. So, mm, mm. yeah, it's difficult to do that in London. Yes. I mean, when you yeah. the, that was the biggest advantage of of, of moving home and away was uh. was seeing family and having space. And uh, I was chatting to a producer earlier today for about an hour about a project I'm working on at the minute, and we were talking about how much easier it is to get things done in Northern Ireland because people are willing to do a little bit extra if they believe in a project because their overheads are less. So you can't afford to work for, for less than your rate or for, for, uh, you know, a couple of hours extra for nothing in London because you fucking, you just, you're just working so hard to stay afloat. And whereas at over here, it seems there's a lot more kind of, if you want to do a project, people will get behind it. And, oh, don't worry about the rate or don't, you know, it's fine. I'm, I'm making money in this other thing. And, that's become increasingly difficult. In my time in London anyway, I, I noticed that in 10 years becoming increasingly less the way people worked. Like people didn't want to do anything for free. Um, and I think sometimes actually it's good to work for free to remind yourself why you do something. It's also good to make things if nobody's working. It's, it's no, there's, no, there's no disadvantage in making something great if nobody gets paid because the work will get you work, right? So yeah, um, uh, there's many advantages to being home, but certainly uh, space is one of them. As I say this from my garage where I built a studio, having never had anything approaching a garage at uh, my time in London. Ah, what are your plans for the future? What What are your main things on your bucket list? Uh, I want to live in France for a bit. Um, I want to go. Oh, because you speak L French as well, right? I do, yeah. Not, I mean, not not as well as as. Uh, so, I mean, uh, yeah, not as well as I'd like. But I have worked in France and I've acted in French and um, I've played bilingual before, which isn't quite the same thing as being bilingual. Um, but uh, because they give you a script, which is great. Um, but yeah, uh, I'd love to live in France for a while with my wife. We have spent quite a bit of time in France together and I'd love to buy a property over there if we could and, and move there for a time or rent there. I don't care. Um, I'd love to go to LA for a few months. I promised myself now we've got a kid, it's less and less likely that it'll happen anytime soon, but I still would love to do it. Why LA? Uh, just to see the fucking circus uh, from ringside. That's um, so funny because see, I recently, literally recently had the same weird strong feeling in my body like just go now to LA just to see how just it, do it just, but then do just it okay. yeah, yeah and I will I will yeah <laughs> do you know what I mean like here's yeah. the thing right here's here's the thing uh, a friend of mine who's a director 
and is much more successful than me and um, to the point where I would love to work with him but even though he's my very good friend he hasn't hired me in quite some time um, he and I were going to go to LA together about five years ago because he's not very good in social settings and I can actually turn it on when I want to and be like oh be a Mr. fucking friendly and pretend that I like pretend that I like people more than dogs which isn't true and um, he, I was going to go as his wingman and you know he had contacts and I didn't but I had uh, a slightly more social uh, confidence than he did and so we were going to do it together and we should have and we didn't and both of us regret it and it's not from a career perspective it's from a collecting stories I always said about our, our move to London we just went to collect a story about our move to London and if we'd failed that yeah, would have been yeah, the, yeah. the story would have been about failure or you know if we'd come back after three months the story would have been about the time we went to London but came back after three months like it's life it's just about collecting stories right and we missed out on that particular chapter in the book and I'll get it I'll get it again I'll get it again but I'd like to do that um, bucket list um I would like to do an Ironman. That's why I'm starting to swim. Um, I would like to... Uh, I currently have a time for a 10K, which I'd like to get down by another four and a bit minutes or more. Uh, I'd like to never have sciatica again. That would be excellent. Uh, so I'm starting uh, Pilates in a couple of weeks to try to strengthen my back and make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, but yeah, I mean, my bucket list really has, when I talk when I talk to my wife now, it's all about the things we can do to improve our son's life. So like, it'll be like, you know, about uh, should we work our, butt, our butts off and try and buy a, uh, like a small cottage in the middle of nowhere in Ireland um, so that we can go there every weekend and that will be his childhood and we kind of feel like, yeah, that's not something we would necessarily do, but like that would be a great thing for a kid to do every weekend, go to the middle of nowhere and fucking, you know, see nature and and, and be in a place that doesn't have fucking Wi-Fi. And um, so, so those things, a lot of the time now, it's like that would be great for him. Uh, which probably means he'll hate us and, and feel like we, you know, corralled him into doing something he didn't want to do. But fuck it, that's being a parent, right? But um, 10 years later, he'll thank you probably, no? Yeah, well, this is it. You know, yeah. at my funeral, he'll say some lovely words. Um, but so stuff, that tends to be our bucket list stuff. I don't do bucket list career stuff anymore because I realize how little power I have over my career. Um if it whatever happens will happen but there's no point in me saying I want to play the lead in a future film in the next three years because I have fuck all control over that like that'll happen if it happens and maybe that makes me lazy but how's that actually I'm I'm going to steal a question that you always ask your guests about luck what would you say is the kind of luck factor in becoming a successful actor whatever that means because I love I actually love Michaela Cole's definition of success she said when she was sleeping in her car she felt successful and I love that because as long as you're doing what you want to do you're successful it's just wonderful it is there's an element of relativity to it right yeah so, yeah exactly so one of the things I always did in the podcast was say do you feel successful and invariably people would say no and then I'd say would your 21 year old self think of you as successful and invariably the answer is yes because somehow we revise our definition of success upwards and it's, it's right we should and 
it makes us, you know, reach for better and all the rest of it. But as we get older and we achieve the things we want to achieve, if we're lucky, we don't go, that's it. Now I've, I've, I've achieved that. I'm happy. Uh, we search for more. And, and for me, success is being able to pay your bills without having to work a job that you don't want to do. Oh yeah. Um, that, that is it. That, that is, it's quite simple, right? Um, for me anyway. And, and the luck, luck factor, what, what, how would you? Luck helps. Talent will out. Yeah. And, you know, um, yes, you can probably force yourself into the limelight and get noticed. But I feel like at 42, you, the time for doing that is in your 20s and early 30s. I think when you're 42 and forceful, you just come across as a bit of a dick. So uh, you have to just sit back and realize it didn't happen before now. And so it's now in the laps of the gods. And uh, I would love to do what, say, Stephen Graham and Sean Bean do in time and lead a show like that. It'd be fucking amazing. Be a stress. It would be hard work. Uh, I'd fucking die inside when it went out for fear that I was terrible. But I would love the opportunity to do it. Now, Chances of that are very slim at my age, but I'm also very happy to be playing interesting roles, secondary roles, and things like that. That's it's fine, but it's fine by me, totally fine by me. But you um, also, Jonathan, you create a lot of stuff, like you said before, like when you see your friends or people you know uh, running their head against a wall. I mean, there's this funny metaphor, obviously, like why don't you just walk around the wall or climb over it or find yeah. a door. But I, I mean, there might be some truth in it. I think. Hmm. Um, like you never know. <laughs> well, I, I just and, find it yeah. hard to sit. Still. As long as you're flexible, I think. Yeah. I find it hard to sit still. So, like, um, I've never banged my head on the wall. I've always put the work in, give something a try, and if it doesn't work out, I'll try it again. If it doesn't work out. I'll maybe give it a third whack. And then after that, you go like, time to try something new here. And I don't mean like a change of career. I mean like like just a different tact or tack rather. Um, and, and... Flexibility, yeah. And, and your technique for getting through or over walls must evolve as you get older. Because when you're young, you have probably got the resolve and the energy to break through it with your head. To, to kind of extend that metaphor to its natural conclusion. When you're 22, <laughs> you probably have the energy to hit your head off a wall enough times that you'll break through it. So hitting your head off a wall in your 20s is not necessarily a waste of time. Um, when you're 42, you do not have the energy to do that anymore. A, you think, why should I have to bang my head off a wall? I've been banging my head off a wall for 20 years. Can someone not bang this wall for me? Um... B, you have other things in your life that you'd rather do than bang your head off a wall. And C, time has taught you that banging your head off the wall doesn't actually impact it. So so I guess for me now, um, I have an agent I trust who works hard for me. Yeah. I have a certain amount of confidence in my ability to do the job. Enough opportunities come my way that I don't often panic about the lack of opportunity 
I mean, in terms of auditions, I don't mean offers or anything. And yeah. I feel like I've got enough of a CV and a showreel that I can stand up and say confidently, I'm an actor. I can deliver this num- these things for you if you choose to hire me. That being out there is enough for me now. Like, I don't write to people anymore. I don't send my CV for things. I don't submit myself. I don't, as I say, network. Or I've kind of got to a point where I'm kind of happy where I'm at. I could be busier. I could make more money. I could get bigger parts. But the cost of that to me, in terms of the additional work, would prevent me from weeding my garden. It would prevent me from being fit. It would prevent me from, and this sounds like excuses, The Rock would agree, disagree with me here. Uh, David Goggins would disagree <laughs> with me here. Okay. Right? But, but, but I have other shit that I want to do in a day. And the more time I give to pursuing something that so far has not happened, the less time I have to things I can actually control, that I actually enjoy. How has having a child impacted you, I mean, changed your perspective? Unbelievably, and I know mm. everybody says this, I, um, if, if something comes in now filming in Europe, I really, really have to, like, really want to do the tape. Like, because I don't want to go away for two weeks and leave my wife on her own with a two-year-old. Um, I don't think it's fair. Um, and I don't want to be away from them for two weeks unless it's something fucking amazing. Or the money's amazing and it's going to st- prevent me from having, or, you know, it's going to make me not going to have to work for six months, right? But generally speaking, that doesn't happen. And so if something comes in and it's like two weeks in Bulgaria, I'm like... <sighs> Two weeks in Bulgaria, of which I'm filming three days, I'm in three scenes, and the part's boring and functional, and fuck that, I'm not going to bother taping. <laughs> and that's okay. where I am with it, and I've never been there before. And it's not because my career's further on, it's just because, fuck, what's the, like, which is more important on balance? My three days in fucking, like, a feature film I would never watch if I wasn't in it, uh, playing a part that I know it will never end up in my sure wheel because it's two-dimensional as fuck. Like, that's... So that's how it's changed stuff for me. I'm very, very clear about the things that I do and don't want to do. Um, and I guess um, it's made me think about it more as a job in that regard, like less as a career or or as an, I mean, talk about art at the start of this, but like it may be an art, but it's my job. This the this this artistry, for whatever one of a better word, is my job, and um, I therefore have to be able to walk away from it. It's not it's not my vocation. It's not my. Uh, it's a thing I do to buy groceries, and it's a thing I do. I love to do, but ultimately it equates to groceries. Uh-huh. <laughs> acting is that. groceries like you know what I, like so all the artistry aside all the make sure you know your lines all the be prepared all the you know fuck it, out the window acting equals groceries what about you being a director because I feel like what what directing a different drive there as well okay mm. yeah I mean there's there's two things with directing one is the kind of I'm doing two different things but one is I'm, I'm working on stuff that I believe in creatively and and I'm where I'm taking risks and where I'm not getting paid well. Uh, 
the other things that I'm doing, I believe in creatively and I'm stretching myself and I'm learning, but I'm not taking risks and I'm getting paid well. And so one thing is, is where I'm seeing it more as a career and a trajectory towards directing TV and where any TV is good TV and where that's great. And the other side of it is uh, working towards making an interesting feature film that I would like to debut at, you know, a fucking interesting film festival somewhere, which doesn't pay money and is a labor of love. But the, here's the whole thing, Michael, when it, if I'm totally honest, right? Directing equals groceries. And if I boil it down, I talk about not wanting to be away from family. Uh, I was working on something recently and directing is 11 hour days, 12 hour days. And then it's coming home and quite often looking at rushes or prepping for the next day or reminding yourself of the prep that you've done. So it's 13, 14 hour days, right? So if you're at home, if you're lucky enough to be filming something within driving distance of your home. So I did a commercial there, which was like an hour and a half drive. So I was leaving at like six in the morning and getting back at like eight o'clock at night before my son got up in the morning and after he went to bed at night, didn't see him. Now it was only, this one was three days, right? But in those three days, what you realize is if I was directing the dream, if I was directing like uh, uh, succession, right? I would be in America for two months at a time. I would not see my family. I get paid very well. And even if that filmed in Belfast, if I was directing fucking Game of Thrones season, whatever they got to, and they were doing a reunion fucking series like Friends, right? I'd still be working 14 hour days for a fucking months and I wouldn't see my family. And I have to now balance that. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not in a position to be an offered either of those things. I'm a fucking, I'm a, I'm a million miles away from them. However, I've started the question for the first time if I really want that. Like, do I really want 14 hour days away from my wife and kid? And the answer is, I don't think so. Yeah, I so really don't, put I don't things think in perspective. so. Mm. Yeah, totally. And, you know, um, I'd started first day daying in London and was getting work and it was great. And since I got home, I haven't even bothered trying because I'm like, I don't want. Like, the many people I know in the film industry who struggle to have personal relationships. And if they're not in a relationship, when they start working in the film industry, they find it incredibly difficult to find someone and stay with someone whilst they're working three months, six day weeks, 12 or 13 hours a day. Like, it's not... Acting's good because you're not there that long and you're quite often good days off. But for everybody else, it's a really hard industry. It, and it doesn't mix well with family life. For everybody bar the actors. It takes over, yeah. For director and everybody else, every department, every department, it takes over. And you cannot be an, you cannot be a present parent if six days a week you're away for 13 or 14 hours. And you're going to miss shit. But in, in abstraction, if I could do anything else that allowed me to work nine to five make good money and occasionally act and occasionally direct stuff that was out of the way quite quickly and didn't interfere with my family life. I'd kind of go for that option. Hmm. 
So as actors, we're a more privileged position, you're saying, because there's more time, even if we're yeah, working. I mean, from a family there. perspective, I mean, from lots yeah. of other perspectives, we're not. But like, you know, when was the last time anybody listened to this, if you're an actor and you're not the rock? Like, when was the last time you were in on a job five days, six days a week, and every, you know, in the first and last shot every single day? It doesn't happen. Even people who are late, quite often they get a day off or they're in the first, the first scene of the day and then they're gone home. But if you're, if you're facilities on a film, you turn up like two hours before everybody else and you go home two hours after everybody else. If you're, if you're makeup, you turn up before everybody else and leave after. You turn up before the first cast member and leave after the last cast member. If you're fucking catering, you get a nice, nicer day. But like generally speaking, every single department that's on set or on base has a, in a 10 hour film day, has a 12 hour day. And and if you even if you're doing five day weeks, you're gonna be fucking knackered on Saturday and Sunday. I have a friend who does sound department and he works in big shows and he works basically does three months on, three months off. And the three months on he hates himself because he feels like he's missing out on his kids' lives. It's like living it's like working on a fucking oil rig. Working in the film industry is like going to an oil rig for three months and telling your family, listen, I'll see you in three months or four months or five months. And that's what's incredibly difficult about it is that whenever you're aspiring to direct film and TV, as I have been for a number of years, you just, something focuses you on the want. I want this. I want that. I want I want to be doing this. And then, then when I sat down and thought about it quite recently, I was like, after I did that commercial, I was like, Fuck, those three days were really hard. Three days. Three fucking days, right? Those three days were really tough. And then you think, well, could you do it for three months? I'm not sure. I'm just not sure I could. I'm really not. And obviously, if I was getting paid a million and, you know, Sam Bain, if you're out there and you're you're looking for a new director for, you know, I've got, I've got two mediocre short films you should take a look at. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you know so uh, yeah that's I mean that's it's an academic discussion for what it's worth but that's that's certainly a consideration for the first time ever when you ask about family is do I do I want the same things and do I want them as fiercely as I did two years ago no hmm where can people find you what's the best way to get in touch with you Jonathan um if you Stand at the corner of Finicky Crossroads in Belfast <laughs> on a Monday, Wednesday or Saturday at about 6am. Yeah. You'll see me run past and you're welcome to join me. Cool. Uh, um, otherwise... Always the same uh, time. Always always the same time. Otherwise, um, <clears throat> I can be... Uh, you can follow me like some kind of guru um, uh, on Twitter <laughs> at Jonathan Arden. Um, mm. or on Instagram same handle it's very very my team really thought about it and um, you can also find me um, staring at the bottom of a rum and coke most weeknight evenings but that's I mean if people want to find me they'll find me thanks so much man it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure talking to you sir Thank you for listening. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. 
You can leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it and you can share it on social media. It really does help other listeners find us. And make sure to subscribe to get the next episode. Thanks so much for your support. Thank you.